0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scripture is uh, Matthew 19, verses uh, 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. These said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, um, we just thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for this church. Uh, We thank you for this community um, that uh, surrounds us and every person who um, showed up today. And um, we just ask that you um, would bless uh, this sermon today, um, that you would uh, just use the words um, in the sermon to... Teach us, um, and Lord, that we would just have an open heart to um, hear the teachings today. Um, And Lord, I just pray for this building that we meet in, uh, Liberty Memorial Middle School, and all the students and teachers. um, And we just ask that you would fill the hallways of the school um, and that um, kids would feel a lightness um, when they come to this school um, and that they would, they would come to find that that is your presence, Lord, and um, that they would just, yeah, just come to know you someday. Um, and Lord, just thank you again. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here uh, and you're with us for the first time. Uh, You find us kind of getting to the back part of uh, our study through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And so we could look at this as the gospel according to Matthew or as Matthew the scribe uh, was looking at all that Jesus fulfilled in his life and all the teachings that Jesus had. He wanted to make sure that he wrote it down in such a way that we put hope and trust uh, in Jesus. We put hope and trust in Jesus when he tells us things that are, you know, cozy, fluffy truths. You know, things like Matthew 11, verse 28, where he looks at people and he says, man, if you are tired... If you are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. You know, I mean, there there can be a hard question about what does it mean to, like, lay down my tiredness and lay down my burdens at the feet of Jesus. And how many times do I have to try that when I keep picking them back up until I feel a lightness that comes? But there's not a lot of theological debate about, like, a Jesus who wants to carry your burdens. But sometimes there's really hard words of Jesus. Like sometimes there's hard words of Jesus that start to touch us in in really sensitive places, places that we know that are important, because like when we hear them, like there's a response. And so here we see these words like we see uh, Jesus talk about marriage, what is intended to be from the beginning. We, we see him talk about a theological debate of divorce. Like when is it acceptable or okay? And what did Jesus really, you know, what God intend from the beginning for it to be? And what does it happen and look like in a broken world? And then we see words that talk about like singleness. I mean, here it says eunuchs, which is not a favorable word. So, uh, but it talks about like singleness in this world. And like I, You know, as I even look at this passage, I'm reminded the reason why we typically preach through books of the Bible uh, is because we want to look to the scriptures to set the table for what we need to ask. And if you've been with us in this study, you know that we did this in Matthew five, you know, and and maybe you're still kind of reeling from that. And we use a lot of Matthew 19. And so you might ask the question of like, why are we looking at again? Casey, why are you so repetitive? And all I have to say is I'm not repetitive. The Bible's repetitive. But what does Jesus have to say about marriage and singleness and divorce And, you know, even the Pharisees, they kind of butt themselves into this conversation because they want to know. Earlier this week, uh, Kinsey uh, sent me a text, a picture, and uh, she says, can you see Charlie? And all I saw was a mountain of blankets on the couch. And uh, I zoomed in and I could see Charlie's little nose sticking out. He's a German short hair pointer. Just, Just his nose sticking out and then one nervous eye looking up. And uh, like I look at that, and my first response was like, oh, man, that is so fluffy and cozy. And I just kind of want to hug him. And so it's like this fluffy truth that, man, you just want to embrace and you want to wrap around. But there's also a hard truth. He's not supposed to be on the couch on that blanket. And it's not like he suffers. He's on the couch on a dog blanket, but my kids wrap him up in our blankets. And it's a bad thing because he's a smelly dog. And then sometimes at night you're like on the couch and you pull the blanket up to you and you smell it. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's Charlie. The Bible has both. The Bible has both. And so when we look at this, man, I don't want to fail in either direction. Like, like first, I don't want to fail to explain what the Bible and Jesus specifically says about marriage, divorce, and singleness. And I want you to hear this: that the Bible's pretty clear that God hates divorce. Like, like he hates it for what it does and how it hurts, but he doesn't hate the divorced. But I also don't want to fail in the other direction. I don't want to miss to explain. The gospel, the heart of God in the context of marriage, singleness, and divorce. And I don't don't want to miss the heart of God that we see throughout the scriptures. I don't want to miss the heart of God like we see in Luke 7. When Jesus is eating at Simon the Pharisee's house and while he's eating, a woman comes to him and starts to wash his feet with oil. And some point in the moment of washing his feet, she loses it. Maybe she loses it because she hears the commentating around the table. Where they say, man, does Jesus even know what kind of woman this is? For she was a known prostitute of the town. And so she starts weeping. And as her tears flowed and covered Jesus's feet, she's astonished by maybe not just tears, but maybe snot flowing too. And she takes her hair and starts to wipe his feet up. What does Jesus do? Like Jesus doesn't say, man, who are you? Get away from me. Jesus accepts her worship. He forgives her and he protects her. And Jesus hated prostitution, but he doesn't hate the, the prostitute. Or, or I don't want to miss like a John 8, the woman caught in adultery is thrown at Jesus' feet, and they ask him, The law of Moses says that for her sins she should be killed. And Jesus pauses and he starts to write some mystery message in the dirt that we don't know what he wrote, but we can always just kind of think about it, but we don't know what he wrote. And then he stands up and says, he who has no sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, everyone who was there to condemn her walks away. And then he looks at her and it's this beautiful, tender moment. He says, honey, who's left to condemn you? Now, theologically, Jesus is left to condemn her. And he has every right to do so. But she looks up and she says, no one, they've all left. And he says, well, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. It's the heart of Christ. Or, you know, in John 4, Jesus goes out of his way to love a woman at a well. He confronts her. He tells her that she was trying to find satisfaction in men. It led her through marriage after marriage, marriage and divorce five times. And so marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce, marriage, divorce. I don't know what number I'm on, but marriage and divorce. And then he says, the man you're living with isn't even your husband. so Jesus saw her brokenness. He saw her broken marriages and the longing inside of her heart that made her vulnerable again and again and again. And Jesus didn't change his stance. He hated divorce, but he loved that woman. And so as we look at this, we're going to see the heart of God come out on intentions, what marriage is meant to be. And we're going to see the devastating brokenness of what this world can do to us. And then we're going to see a calling And so as Jesus talks about this, we're going to look at this uh, under three headings. And so it's going to be what's available. And it starts off with healing is available. And then we're going to look at what's the question. And so the questions that come are about marriage and divorce. And Jesus answers them. Uh, And then we're going to finally look at what's offered. And I believe what's offered in verses 10 through 12 are gifts. And so let's start and let's take a look at this. It says, first, what's available? And the very first thing that we see come out is that people are getting healed. And so look at verse one. It says, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so the, the question would be, what sayings? And the, the sayings are the teachings that we've been hearing that he's turned away from the crowd and he started to teach the disciples about what this life is gonna be like when he is gone, when he is delivered over in Jerusalem, when he is crucified and dies and raises again, even after the Holy Spirit comes, what must this community be like? And so he starts really focusing on the disciples. And you know this is right after they come and they say, hey, hey, they're having an argument. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so they're, they're bringing evidence for why Peter might be greater than Andrew or why Andrew might be greater than someone else. And so they're doing what people do. They're measuring their strengths against others' weaknesses to make themselves feel like they're okay. And so Jesus hears this argument about who's the greatest and he says, hey, let me tell you about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. But first, let me tell you how to get into the kingdom of God. And so what we see in verses one through four, look at it in verse 18, chapter 18, is we say that we must humble ourselves like children to get into the kingdom of God. And so this actually says a a lot about the gospel. Like, what do we see in children? And there's so many things that we could see, but I want to point out just a couple things. I want to say that what we see in children is that they know that they need help and they know that they are loved. And so first, the gospel says that you can't do it. Only the death of God could fix you. You can't do it. You, You need help. Like whatever podcast, self-help make you feel better about whatever you're listening to, it's not enough to fix you. The Bible is clear. The only thing that could make us right before God to make us sons and daughters again because of the brokenness inside of us was the death of someone who could atone for us. And it wasn't the death of sheep or goat or anything else. It was the death of God, Jesus Christ. You need help. But then what we can learn from this is the gospel says that you are loved. Jesus willingly died in your place to bring you back to God. In the Bible reading plan, which is the moment where you shake your head. So everyone's like, man, you're reading the Bible with the church. Read the Bible with us. In the Bible reading plan, uh, Hebrews 12 You know, so we're kind of getting into Hebrews, it's right around this time, and we hear this, it says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so Jesus is the founder of our faith. That means it starts with Jesus. Your salvation started in the heart of God and he sent Jesus. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. And that means that Jesus holds our faith and is working to bring our faith to completion. He's working to change us. Your salvation is built upon the cross and is promised to withstand. No matter when we encounter the hard truths of God. But it goes on and it says, "...who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." And so it's not that Jesus just founded your faith. He did it because it brought him joy to do so. Like the end result of your salvation, bringing you back to God as a son or daughter for the glory of God the Father made him happy to do it. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that he wasn't scared. It doesn't mean that he didn't pray. There's gotta be another way to do this in the garden. It means that when he looked at you, When he looked at his people and when he thought about an eternity without us, no atonement for sinful people, it gave him joy to do it. Like, that's a lot of foundation. Like, we have to humble ourselves to children. We have to know that we can't do it, but we also have to believe we're loved when we look at Jesus. But that's the first thing, these sayings. The next is, and we'll say this really fast look at verses six and nine. He says, We must fight sin for one another. Like, sin is a problem for the people of God. And I man, we're gonna have to fight it in ourselves and we have to fight it in others. Like, we have to treat it as dangerous. You know, in, in verses seven, it's told that we're always gonna face temptation. And so if you're waiting for a sanctifying moment in your life that you're not going to face temptation, keep waiting. You're always going to have to fight temptation. But then it picks up in verses eight and nine, and it says sin is like a deadly cancer that we must deal with seriously. He says, cut it out of our lives. And then if you look at verse six, where it began, it says that we're told we must fight temptation, treat sin seriously so we don't hurt others. The sin that we take casually might destroy someone looking at us. So we must fight sin seriously. That's what these sayings. And so the the Pharisees are hearing Jesus talk to his disciples and they still have a question circulating in the back of their mind. But it says more than that. If you look at verse 10, it says that we must chase one another. In this life together, when we give ourselves to brokenness or we give ourselves to sin or we give ourselves to isolation, like the people of God have to chase after one another. And then it says we must confront one another, starting in verse 15 through 20. And then it says in verse 21, we must forgive one another, receive them back. And this confrontation and forgiving is what leaving the 99, the picture we see, the 99 and going after the one sheep actually looks like, but you have to forget the cute, cuddly lamb. And you have to see your brother and sister who can sometimes be prickly and hard. Like, you have to see it because we're all prone to wonder. And so it starts off, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, these teachings of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, what we must be for one another, you know, all of a sudden what we see is the Pharisees kind of butt themselves in. But before we get to that butting in, look at verse 2. It says, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Before we get to anything else, I want you to know that there is healing in following after Jesus. Like before we move on to the teaching about marriage, divorce, or singleness, like ask the question, do you need healing? Like have you been wounded by the divorce or hurtful marriage of your parents? Are you scared by the brokenness that you see inside of you because of what you experienced earlier in life? Ask for healing. There is healing for those who follow after Jesus. Or have you been wounded by past relationships? Like they lied to you, they hurt you, they used you, they left you and abandoned you. Verse two, it says there's healing. Or is your marriage wounded, in trouble? Verse two, there is healing for those who follow after Jesus. Or have you lost a marriage? fell apart. The the, the details, man, we could talk about them, but it's dead and gone. It's over. And now you're wondering what God has for you. Are you lovable? Are you forever going to walk with a limp? Is there redemption for someone like you? Man, we looked at all these places. We looked at like a Luke 7 and a John 8 and a John 4 about the heart of God and what he can do. And I would say verse 2 says, man, follow after Jesus. There is healing. So first, like, do you need healing? Do you know what you need healing of? Is there a woundedness and a brokenness that you need to hold up to Jesus and just keep holding it and keep talking to him about it? And over time, as you follow after Jesus, he will heal it. So first you need healing. So the first thing is what's available? And I think the text is saying, man, healing's available for those who follow after Jesus. Then, what's questioned? And the question that gets kind of butted in by the Pharisees who kind of jump in on this is about marriage and divorce, starting in verse three. And so first they question divorce, and they're saying, what's permitted? What's permitted? And so look, it says, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause? Like, can I leave my husband or wife if I just find myself not happy or unhappy or I didn't know they were going to be like this? Uh, Is there anything that is blocking myself from like what I really, really want? Can I just say I'm not good with this anymore? Can I divorce my spouse for any cause? And so like good news, bad news. Good news. They were just as messed up as we are. (laughs) Like, good news. Like, this is 2,000 years ago, and they're looking at marriage, and they're saying, man, sometimes it's hard, and it's really, really broken. And this was a super family-oriented society. And they're saying, man, what do we do when it's hard? And so, like, you are not alone. We are not in a culture that is, like, forever damned by God that is facing something new. Like, there is help. Like, Jesus is going to go back to original intention, so there's good news. Like, we're not the only screwed-up ones, Bad news. There is a selfish bend in all of us in suffering and disappointment. Christians are tempted just like this. When these kinds of questions come up, you're not the only one. And you need to follow Jesus more than ever. If you're trying to trap Jesus, what can I get away with? Healing is not promised, but if you're trying to follow after Jesus, there is a healing that's promised that's going to start in your soul, and it might extend to reconcile a relationship, but it takes two healings for that to happen. But like we're not the only ones, but this is inside of us. And so good news, bad news, they say, can I divorce my wife for any cause? And so it keeps going, and the Pharisees are still stewing about what they heard back in chapter 5. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was a series of sermons that Jesus probably teached a lot. Like he went into a new place and he would teach these series of sermons. And so they probably heard it over and over. But like we're in chapter 19 and that was chapter five. And so maybe they, you know, followed Jesus around and heard what he was saying about this. And they were kind of like, man, where does Jesus stand on this issue? Because there was a debate And so they come to Jesus and they're saying, yeah, 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 all that forgive, you know, 77 or, you know, seven times 70 or all that kind of hippie commune forgive stuff. That's great. Where do you stand on this issue? Are you like us conservative or are you like them liberal? Where do you stand? Which once again, man, we're not the first ones. We're not the first ones that want to try to appeal to Jesus in a political category when the scriptures want to unfold a different kind of kingdom altogether. And so they come and they say, are you with us or are you with them? Just go ahead and just clarify it. And what this was, was this was taking, is there a side between two different teachings? And it was coming from one word in Deuteronomy 24, verse one, one word. And so Deuteronomy 24, verse one, it says this, when a man takes a wife, which is, you know, Deuteronomy, uh, sometimes people, when they start a Bible reading plan, uh, they never get past Leviticus. Um, and so, you know, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And so you never get the second law. So Deuteronomy means second. So second, onomy means law. And so it's taking the law of God from the 10 commandments and expanding it out. So how do we do this in practice? And so it starts to ask other questions. And so Deuteronomy 24 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency, that's the word we got to deal with, in her, and he writes or he chooses to write her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And then it goes on to continue to describe stuff in verses 2, 3, and 4. But the question came down to what is this indecency that is fine? And so there were two schools of thought. You know, one school of thought was um, under um, kind of the conservative camp, under a rabbi Shemay or Shemai, that said indecency was adultery, and so it meant shameful nakedness that's found. Now that word indecency it comes from the word ervah, and it means it's usually translated as nakedness, and so it's usually trans like. Which, you know, so he gets married and he finds nakedness, which I'm like, isn't that why everyone gets married? You know, I mean, but he gets married, but he finds something shameful that's associated with this. And so Rabbi Shammai, he said, listen, that can only mean adultery. But there was another school of thought, a more liberal camp, Rabbi Hillel, that said indecency could mean anything upsetting that he uncovered. And so Jesus weighs in. But before he weighs in, he talks about not what is permitted. He talks about what is intended. And so Jesus answers with marriage. He says, this is what was intended starting verse four. And so in verse four, he points back to creation and describes the original intent of marriage. And so verse four, it says this, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus answers and he says, listen, let's look at God's original design for marriage. He says, it was never supposed to be torn apart. People were never supposed to leave. We weren't supposed to take, lie, or hide, but sin entered in and hurt everything. And it has a way of perverting the most beautiful things into the most hurtful things. It was never intended to separate. And so he points back and he says, thinks about Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, naked in a beautiful garden in apparently temperate California like temperatures because they didn't have clothes. And so the question about this is what do we do in a fallen and broken world where not everything is temperate? What do we do in a place like Kansas where it is hot one day freezing the other day and you don't know what's going to happen and neither does the, the weather man. They don't know what's going to happen. What do we do in a world that's unpredictable? And he says, Look at the original creation. Look at what God intended. Now, listen, I want to look at this just for a second. There's a lot of doctrine in this. So so first, like doctrine, God made male and female. Like he loves it. He made men and he made women and he thinks it's great. Matter of fact, when he just made man and it was just man, he's like, "Ah, it's just okay. And then he made woman and he said, man, it is very good. And so he made men and he made women. And there's something about the differences and he talks to them differently sometimes. It'd be something in that that he says, man, this is so good. But there's more than that. We also see the doctrine of marriage, that marriage is for a husband and a wife and he loves it. We we didn't create it, so we don't get to set the rules for it. God entrusted Eve to Adam, and there's expectations. And so we see things in Scripture like husbands, be loving, sacrificial servant leaders. Love and sacrifice for your wife. And then there's warnings like in 1 Peter 3, 7, or I won't hear your prayers. Which this actually makes a lot of sense to me. I have three daughters, and so like one day, Lord willing, uh, they're probably going to get married to, you know, someone I might like a little bit. Lord willing. And the good news about that is I can officiate the wedding and save money. The bad news about that, I am the cheapest part of the wedding. And so Lord willing, that can happen, but like in that scenario, man, if they start to Hurt my daughters or neglect my daughters or not keep their promises to my daughters. And then they show up my house and they ask for a favor. Like, yeah, I got a favor for you. It's a punch in the throat. Because I love my daughters. How much more does God love his daughters? And so entrusting daughters to sons to say, man, care for them and nurture them. We make promises and those promises have nothing to do with present love. We don't say, man, I promise to marry you because I love you right now and we'll just kind of see what happens. We say things like, I promise to have and to hold. I promise to have and to hold in good times and bad times in sickness and health, in rich or poor, whatever may come. I'm making a promise to you of future love. I will be loving. I will be there. I will stand there knowing that in a broken world, winter comes in a place like Kansas. It is dark by four o'clock. How does that? We've got to get rid of daylight savings time. In an untemperate world, we make promises for the future. You know, in in, in weddings, uh, couples, they sometimes want to write their own vows. And I'm like, sure, you can write your own vows. I just have to, like, you know, see them. You know, what are we agreeing to? Because you didn't create marriage. You don't get to dictate the parameters of it. It was created by God. And, and so sometimes it's like, man, I, I, I promise to, you know, have uh, uh, lattes with you on cold mornings. I'm like, that's great, man. I love lattes, but it's more than that. And so I always add the traditional vows and I say, repeat after me. I, say your name, promise to take you, you know, and then all the way through to having to hold till death do we part. Because we didn't create it so we don't get to decide what it looks like. And so Jesus says, remember the intention of what it was supposed to be. And so we see that the doctrine of man, just male and female. We see the doctrine of husband and wife. Uh, We see that marriage was meant to last a lifetime. Look at these words in verse 5. It says, leave. The rules are changing. There's now a new family being established that has new priorities. Leave. It says hold fast. Like, like the, the old word is cleave, but that sounds like a cleaver, like a knife. And so we don't really know what that means. But it translates hold fast, meaning like sometimes it's hard to hold fast. Sometimes it's easy to hold fast. But pull in tight and hold fast. And then it says one flesh, which means one organism. And so the picture, is there ever a time to cut off your legs and the answer is in a broken world there is but man you do everything you can to avoid that and so we go back to the original intended relationship of what marriage is and so they question divorce what's permitted and then Jesus came back and answered marriage what's intended but Jesus also answers on divorce what's allowed and so look at verse 7. It says, they said to them, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And so this is, this is also from Deuteronomy 24.1. And so, you know, what we see here is the conservative party came to Jesus for a conservative answer, but he goes to original attention. And now they're getting nervous and they're saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking about something that's a little bit higher than what I was talking about. And so they get nervous. And then verse eight, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, and this is the teaching, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so Jesus pointed back to creation And now Jesus points in to expose hardness of heart. And that word that's describing hardness, it means like dried out. And so sometimes hearts are just hard like stone. Sometimes they're pretty brittle and numb and just dried out. But he points inside and he says, listen, there is something that sin can do that makes our hearts so hard. And so just for real quick survey of the scriptures and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of reading that can be done about this. But in, in just kind of a swoop, what does the Bible say? How does it allow for divorce? And first it says for adultery in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 5, and Matthew 19. You know, it's first seen in Deuteronomy 24, 1, and then it's affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 5, and again in Matthew 19, and it's not commanded. Forgiveness and reconciliation is possible, even when it comes to adultery. I know people who have beautiful marriages after infidelity. I know people, but it's because they put hard work in and there was a healing as they followed after Jesus inside of them, and then there was a deeper love for Jesus and for one another, and so it's possible. But Jesus is also really practical. He says, man, the hurt is deep. The price of healing can be high. But when paid by both, the party, both will be rewarded immensely. But Jesus says the Bible allows for divorce and adultery. Second, the Bible allows for divorce and abandonment. Now, you can read about this in Exodus 21 or 1 Corinthians 7. Abandonment is much more difficult to define or determine. It's pointed in both of those areas, but it's the idea that someone is leaving the covenant or they're not adhering to the covenant. And so abandonment is a little bit more of a murky thing. It's obvious in extreme circumstances, but muddied as we get in between. And when you are disappointed or hurt or disillusioned and in isolation, the blind spots of how you interpret things are vast. And so you would need Christian community around you to tell you what you can't see, to confront you and hold you and help you reinterpret what's really, really true, that you might see all the evidence that's around and that you might hold out for healing and for change. And when you're hurt or disappointed, the justifying narrative that circulates in your heart is on a constant loop. And look at me, given time, our hearts can justify anything. And so we see two things. Jesus points back and says, marriage was never supposed to end. Divorce is allowed in adultery and abandonment, but it was meant to be mingling of two souls to the point of a greater union where it's hard to know where one begins and the other ends, but its point was to show a greater union than that of how Jesus would care and love the church and be faithful to the church. And that's why we see things like Malachi 2.16, where God says, I hate divorce. Malachi 2.16 The NIV says it this way, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Or it could be translated, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. But he's saying there's a violence that happens inside a divorce. And I guess I would just wanna say this, all divorce happens because of sin. Whether sin done against you or to you or sin living inside both of you or unequal in the relationship, it happens because of brokenness and sin. It happens because what James says, isn't it true you want and you can't have? And then he jumps to, so you murder. And so the Bible says, man, God hates divorce. And so God entrusted Man, when I think about um, when I, I think about my marriage, man, it's so easy for me to smile. And that doesn't mean there hasn't been seasons of difficulty, it doesn't mean there hasn't been seasons of like digging in deeper. But man, I it's easy for me to remember my wedding day. Like when I think about my wedding day, man, I think about a small auditorium in a small country church where there are people packed in and like sitting on top of each other. And it was like 200 degrees and we were all sweating on one another. And I don't even know what the pastor was saying. And so I have to believe that if I get to do my daughter's wedding, you know, Lord willing, if they hire someone else, that's okay, But we're not paying that guy. But if I get to do it, uh, I'm going to have so much to say. But I don't remember what was said, so they won't remember what was said. But I remember when uh, the time came and the music changed and the doors opened and the doors opened and I saw my father-in-law, which wasn't that great. (laughs) But I saw Kinsey. And like she was dressed in white and she was smiling for a second. Then she just started crying and then we just cried a lot. But they started walking down and I remember just she looked so beautiful and it was so great. And we were actually walking down to a song that she sang, but pre-recorded it, uh, which was good because her brother actually sang a song in the wedding. We had the longest wedding known to man. I mean, it was forever long. Uh, But he couldn't get through the first three words. He just cried all the way through uh, the song and it was like, okay. I mean, I guess like if I got up here and just cried the whole time. I mean, is that okay? I don't know. But he just cried all the way through. But I remember there were words that we said and there were promises that were made and there was something behind that where God was saying, I'm entrusting you with something precious to me. And it's held together by promise. And so we read the words, what God puts together, let no man separate. We're not so unlike These people asking the question, divorce was rampant in the first century. The Greek culture didn't have any kinds of formal divorce laws. And as the debate over the word indecency shows, it was a growing problem in the Jewish culture. Divorce is rampant in our culture. Man, when I turned 40, it seemed like divorce became, of people I know, just kind of became the new TikTok challenge. The Bible hates God hates divorce because divorce devastates so many things. So first, divorce devastates economically. Like living expenses double and legal bills appear. Multiple studies show that being divorced results in a 73% reduction in family wealth compared to those who are married. Divorce devastates emotionally, like you would think that those who leave an unhappy marriage would be happier in the end, and you would be wrong. Like a study performed earlier this year found that unhappily married adults who divorced were no happier. In any of the 12 separate measurements of psychological well-being, like divorce did not typically reduce symptoms of depression or raise self-esteem or increase a sense of mastery. That same study showed that two-thirds of unhappy marriages became happy within the next five years. Divorce devastates generationally. contrary to the popular notion that the kids will be just fine, that they'll get two Christmases, children of divorce parents are more likely to have behavior problems and use illegal drugs. They are less likely to complete high school or attend college. They are more likely to engage in dangerous sexual relationships for the age of 17. Women who parents divorced while they were still kids are 59% more likely to divorce themselves. And the likelihood of divorce when both spouses come from divorced homes increases 189%. Earlier in chapter 18, when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, He's saying, listen, there's a cancer that comes with sin that wants to infect and hurt everyone. It doesn't want to just stay in one place. It takes and it devours. And so Jesus answers and he says, listen, from the beginning, this is how marriage was made. This is what it was intended to be. But this world is broken and there are hurts. And so marriage intended to be beautiful can bring also so much pain. So what, what's the point? Man, the point is, God made marriage. He made, made it to be permanent. God made marriage to be full of joy and intimacy and pleasure. Like we see like different things that the scriptures say, but one of my favorite is like Proverbs 18, where it says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor also can be translated pleasure from the Lord. And so God made it to be joyful, intimate and pleasurable. God made marriage to be so unifying. That it's hard to see where one person starts and the other finishes. God made marriage to point to his per- perfect never-ending, always faithful and satisfying love. But sin has certainly marred that. But marriage, by God's grace, still reflects the faithful love of God. And when we give ourselves to that, there's hope. When we follow after Jesus, which sometimes means be still, don't say anything, which is so hard to do. I mean, who hasn't been in some sort of fight and had the moment of like, man, I should just keep my mouth shut. And then the next thing, like, it's just coming out of your lips. I mean, you planned to keep your mouth shut and it just came out. Like, it's so hard to do. But following after Jesus, I've gotta believe that verses one and verses two, that there is healing for those who follow after Jesus. So what's available? Healing. What's questioned? Marriage and divorce. How are they offered? Or what's offered? I think it's gifts. Look at, look at verse 10 through 12. As you look at verse 10 through 12, think about when uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we see you praying. You run off to lonely places and you pray. You seem to be really good at praying. And I've gotta be honest, I'm not really good at praying. Why don't you teach us how to pray? And so he teaches in, in Luke 11, he teaches the Lord's prayer. But then he goes on to give a picture of what it is. And so in Luke 11, he says, listen, when you come to God, your father, and you pray and you ask for food, God only gives good gifts. And so he loves to give things like bread and fish. He never gives things like snakes or scorpions. But I think it works the opposite. Sometimes when we're confused and we're asking for something that's hurtful, like God. And so we're saying, God, I really need a scorpion. Like I really need one. He doesn't give you a scorpion. God is a good father who gives good gifts. And so we're going to talk about two gifts. Marriage is a good gift. Singleness is a good gift. And so first, marriage is a good gift, but it's a gift that must be stewarded. And so in verses four through six, Jesus just affirmed the intent of marriage and has called people to radical forgiveness in maintaining marriage. And he's saying marriage is a gift and you must steward that gift in the way that I tell you, in the way that I direct you. And so we could apply everything in chapter 18 to this. When there's sin in your life, treat it drastically. Don't play with it. Cut it off. When there's sin in your life, don't be casual with it. It will hurt someone else. When you start to run, someone needs to chase you. When you see your spouse run, chase after them. Forgive them. Like all of that could be applied to how marriage is supposed to be maintained, how we view marriage. And so like all of these things being applied to how he talked about the original marriage. Look at verse 10. See, the disciples heard the answer and they came to him and said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like that kind of commitment is a lot. Like they're saying, like from the beginning, marriage is a gift, but that seems to be a lot. Like it's something that's more lofty than what we were thinking. And marriage is a beautiful thing. But when it's hurt, it's a really painful thing. And so it's a gift that can also cause great pain. And we've already teased that out, but if you want your marriage to work, you must see it as a gift from the Lord that demands stewardship, that demands you following after him. Proverbs eighteen twenty two whoever finds a wife finds favor from the Lord, pleasure from the Lord. It's a gift, but it's not yours. Like the reason I'll let people write their, their vows is because everyone, I mean, they, everyone loves it. You know, that's when everyone laughs and smiles and they like, oh, that's true. And so we let them do it. The reason why I don't just let them write their vows is because it's not theirs to define. It's God's to define. And so it has to be covered with courage and strength and gentleness and forgiveness and celebration and accepting one another. And it will walk you into pain. But for marriage to be good, you must see it as a gift from God that must be operated according to what he says. And if you follow after Jesus, there is healing. But it also says singleness is a gift that must be stewarded. Now look at verse 11. There's a lot that we could say about this. But we're going to see words like the most repeated words. We see receive, it's repeated. And then we see eunuchs repeated a lot, five times in one verse, which is so uncomfortable, but we're going to talk about it. And so it says, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so the two most repeated words, first eunuchs, five times in one verse, like both in a verbal way and also in a noun way. And so let's look at what it says. And so first it says, when it says eunuchs, it says the use of this term, like we need to understand that the use of this term would not have fallen on the first century ears like better than it falls on us. Like they would not have been like, oh, yeah, eunuchs, that's great. Like they would have been like, whoa, what are you talking about? Like it would have been rough. And so Jesus is using extreme examples to talk about singleness, but saying that there are decisions that are made and things that happen. And he's not just talking about like actual eunuchs, but he, that would have been a thing in the day. But so he's talking about this in extreme like black and white circumstances. And he's talking about it to show that there is a singleness that can be a gift. But the singleness that Christians follow, if you're in a single season, it's really specific. It means no sex. The Bible doesn't talk about like, I'm kind of scared of marriage, so I'm just going to kind of have sexual relationships. Like that is not a category. So when it talks about singleness, it's talking in a drastic nature of like eunuchs where like sex is meant for marriage. And so we have to deal with this. And he says there's three different ways, like some are born. So you see that for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And so it's saying like there are some people who are born either physically unable or just psychologically uninterested in becoming married. Like they might be kind of interested in it, like, oh, that's not so bad. But they're just kind of like not as drawn to it. And he says, that is a great calling. Like that is something we see that picked up in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, like, hey, that's a calling. But then it goes on, it says, some eunuchs are made by others. Like this would be Jesus's, he'd be referencing the office practice of men being castrated to care for harems. But he'd also be just kind of applying that more broadly to sometimes the experience that we have hurt. Relationships have hurt us. What we experience hurt us. And so when we think about marriage, it doesn't look like something safe. It looks like something very, very dangerous. And so like that would say, hey, in this moment, as you're wrestling that out, receive that as a gift. God is trying to do something in you. Sometimes we are scared of marriage because of what has been done to us or what we've observed. Or the third thing, made by choice. Choosing singleness for the cause of Christ. This means to renounce marriage for another devotion. Like Paul praises this in 1 Corinthians 7. And so whether you're just kind of uninterested in marriage or whether you've been hurt and you're trying to figure that out and so the idea of a relationship just terrifies you or whether you've chosen that you just want to pursue marriage as a gift or whether you've chosen like you're not really super interested in, you're just going to see. Both of these need to be accepted as a gift from God. Everyone has to deal with a gift of singleness for part of their life. And so if you're single and you want to be married, that's great. But the gift of singleness that you have has a call in your life right now. If you're married and it's hard and you want to be single, that's not great. And the gift of marriage has stewardship that God is looking at you and he's saying, I entrusted a daughter to you. I told you what this forgiveness is supposed to look like, what this courageous leadership is supposed to look like. It's mine. I think it's beautiful. And we don't want to smash the marriage. We don't want to smash the mirror. To see your singleness or marriage as a gift that must be steward is to look at the scriptures and say, man, what you give is actually good. And so is there hope? There's a lot of hope. We just have to look for it. Like in Philippians 4a, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Can you see what Jesus is handing you now in this moment or this next season? Can you just say, okay, If you're the God of the universe who limited himself permanently to step into humanity, to live a life for me that I couldn't live, to die in my place, and you still bear the scars and will see the scars when you come back, and if you say that you have plans for my life and that you promise to bring them together and there is healing in your hands, like can I trust this season as a gift? Because it goes on in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me pray for you. As you, man, just be still. The band's going to be coming up. We're going to move to communion. And then I'm going to try to get everyone to help us pick stuff up because there's a big celebration happening with Liberty Memorial, but just for a moment. I know you're tempted to grab things. Just be still. Close your eyes and be still. Where are you? Like, even talking about, about eunuchs, like, where, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself, like, just kind of uninterested right now? Man, that's great. See your singleness as a gift. Do you find yourself scared of marriage because others have hurt you or what you've experienced? Like, see this time of healing as a gift that God has given you. Don't rush into anything. Or are, are you single and wanting to be married? See this time as a gift and trust the Lord. Look for things that are true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is committed what is excellent and like think about these things or are you married and man you you know god is leading you to some sort of courageous leadership to chase or to confront and you need to do it like the leaving of the 99 to go after the one like have courage pray it up and go or you've been hurt and this passage scares you to death like if you would have looked ahead, you'd be like, oh man, I'm sick. I'm not going. Find healing as you follow after Jesus. Father, we need help. Amen. we're reminded that those who get into the kingdom of God have become like children. And something that we can say about children is they know that they need help and they are certain that they are loved. And so, Lord, give us that certainty and give us that knowledge. And as we stay and pray or go behind the curtains to find someone to pray for us or have someone next to us pray with us, or as we come forward to step forward to look and to remember that the body of Christ was broken for us to bring us back to God and it can heal all things. And and the blood of Christ was spilt to pay our sin debt so that we could have a relationship with God, be treated as a son and daughter. And then what we see in Hebrews 12, you now sit at the right hand fa- side of the Father and you intercede for us. And that doesn't mean you're like, oh man, Casey's doing the best he can, just give him more mercy. You say, it has been paid for, heal him. It has been paid for. He is a son. Treat him as a son. It has been paid for. She is a daughter. Treat her as a daughter. It has been paid for. Wherever you are, come in the knowledge that you need help, but come in the assurance that you are loved. Jesus, we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.